Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. And someone pointed out, you know, they had buried a family member. Their boss was texting them at the funeral, asking them to come in or get online to do emails. They were back to work the very next day. And you have to wonder at some point what the cost of humanity is when we're making these exchanges about what labor is worth and how it should be prioritized in the context of everything else that we know people have going on. And I can't fathom thinking that sad, stressed out, unhealthy, unsupported individual is going to do anything even closely (laughs) resembling their best work or living a life that even feels good. And, And so it really feels to me like a quality of life question. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Rodney Evans, and I'm joined by my co-host, Aaron Dignan. Aloha. We are also joined today by Rainsford Stauffer, a journalist who's written for outlets like Teen Vogue, The New York Times, Vox, The Atlantic, you know, some things you might have heard of, and the author of a new book, An Ordinary Age. Rainsford, welcome to the show. Thank you all so much for having me. Absolutely. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the next generation of workers and how they're feeling about the future of work. I have some ideas. Uh, But before we unpack that, let's check in. Let's check in. We always do. We will today. So our listeners know we always begin with a check-in round, whether it's just me and Aaron or we have a guest. And the check-in round question for today is this one. What is your favorite form of self-care? And we'll go Aaron and then Rainsford, and I will go last. My favorite form of self-care, I have a two-part answer. What is actually best for me and most restorative is to go to bed early. Mm. And I have been doing way better at that, so you can feel proud of me. Uh, I basically set my phone. My wife has a password to my phone, and at 1130, it just stops working. (laughs) So that's made a huge difference. But the more indulgent thing I love to do is just sit down and watch like nine hours of a great show or a documentary or whatever, like anything that I can vegetate on. Nice. Rainsford? I was absolutely going to say going to bed ridiculously early. (laughs) You're in good company. That remains my favorite and also I think the most effective. But to add a different one to the conversation, I try to get outside every day, even if it's just for a few minutes. And that really seems to lighten things up and make me feel better. Nice. For me, the thing that really gets me out of my head in the best way, which is the kind of self-care I usually need, is doing some kind of like manual labor. Yes. So I feel like you, you, my friends, will always know when I am at my most stress, when I'm like, I'm going to lay a new patio because <laughs> it's just like 
<laughs> I need to do something that is physically hard enough that it really takes my focus. And I just, I find it very healing to do things like that in those moments. So that's how I take care of myself when when it's the most urgent to me. I wish you lived closer to me because I feel like we could put that to good use. <laughs> You're like, I have some, some garden beds that could use mulching. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so today's topic is future workers and the future of work. And I guess we want to start by asking you, why call your book An Ordinary Age? Oh my gosh, that's such a great question. So the book's title was kind of a brainstorm between my agent, the book's editor, and me. Originally, it was pitched as having the title hashtag best life to kind (laughs) of, it was kind of supposed to dismantle the social media trope of the one size fits all best life that we're all supposed to aspire to and very few of us actually have access to. But the more we thought about it, we wanted it to say more about this time of life, young adulthood, than that. Average, for better or for worse, already has sort of a negative connotation in our society. But (laughs) ordinariness, we're all ordinary. We all experience that every day. It's powerful. It shapes our everyday lives, whether we realize it or not. And we all kind of have different definitions of what it means to each of us individually. And so many of the transitions that happen in young adulthood – between work or the panic that you're the only one who doesn't know what you're doing, you're the only Mm -hmm. one who's lonely, you're the only one who's failing. These are actually profoundly ordinary feelings. And so I think that coupled with the idea that things that shape our lives the most, the conversations, the encounters with people are actually the ordinary ones is kind of what shaped the title of this book. So in April, an excerpt from your book ran in Teen Vogue that was called Dream Jobs Are a Myth. Obviously, Aaron and I spend a lot of time thinking about jobs in the modern age. What, in your estimation, makes dream jobs or the idea of them mythological? So I heard from a lot of people in response to that chapter in particular, all of whom wanted to talk about the fact that they do love their jobs and that to them it is a dream job. And I think that that's exactly the point. The myth of the dream job isn't that there isn't work that we aspire to or find fulfilling or that there aren't dream projects and colleagues and work environments. But the thing I heard over and over from people and where I think the myth really kicks in is people described either not knowing what they're dream job was or being unfulfilled by what it turned out to be or being in a really toxic work environment while trying to chase this dream and internalizing that as something being wrong with them. Mm -hmm. And it feels so important, I think, because you lap so much of your meaning of your dreams, of your life, of the work you do into your job. And Mm -hmm. I think that we kind of miss the other side of the equation, which is that sometimes it's okay for a job to be just a job. And the point is that a one-size-fits-all dream job mentality assumes that we're all kind of deriving the same feelings from work and working in the same circumstances, and we aren't. That makes sense. And I think it is interesting. I mean, we have to walk a tightrope as younger workers. Embracing ordinariness kind of feels radical, it's almost a reclamation of like the old way of living or a, or a different way of thinking about about life and success. And you write in the book, society doesn't just want emerging adults to have work. We want them to have work that is considered worthy and proof that they've made something of themselves or made it. How is the exceptionalism bubble bursting in your view for these younger workers? 
Oh, wow. I think that we're really seeing that kind of rethought in real time right now, but I think it was happening even before the pandemic. I think that this has mm. honestly been brewing in people for decades and probably manifests a little bit differently for every generation. I think that the idea of loving your work gets tricky when it stops you from critiquing the structure in which that work is happening. In the book, I cite work from Dr. Erin A. Check, who does tremendous research on what she calls the passion principle, this idea that self-expression should be the guiding force in career decisions. Basically, it says that pursuing your passion and this idea of being passionate about your work can kind of override your critiques of a capitalist labor structure. And so it looks like being so grateful just to have this dream job at all, that all of a sudden you may not be as compelled to push for better work conditions or collective demands for more leisure time, better wages, shorter hours. So to me, me, so much of the dream job framing boils down to, I'm so grateful just to be in the room that I can't question. <laughs> I can't question whether or not what's happening in the room is treating me well. And I think that young adults today have really seen how that has harmed older generations of people, whether it's their parents or guardians, whether it's older friends or family members. They've seen people pour their entire self-worth and all their time into jobs only to have the job not love them back in the same way. Yeah. And so I think that really the fundamental question, or at least one of them, is they're asking why so much of our worth, meaning, and self-esteem is tied to work anyway, and whether it's tied to the actual work or these ideas of output and productivity and who that productivity serves. Interesting. You know, it's kind of orthogonal, but this reminds me of a little rant that Scott Galloway went on in a video that has gone around the internet where he was basically saying, don't chase a dream job. Just find something you're reasonably good at and you'll enjoy it because you're good at it. <laughs> like lean into something that you have some, you know, some natural or intuitive pleasure in doing and some talent in and the the dreaminess of it will sort of follow suit as you become more, you know, successful, more more notable in something that you have a talent for. Obviously, this is a different angle and I think that one is a little bit more linked to the current thinking about success, but it was interesting that it was another angle at, hey, stop worrying about what the perfect dream job is going to be and start getting a little bit more, you know, grounded in, in what's true. In what's true, and I'd also say what we have access to. I think about right. this all the time in terms of internships when I talk to young adults because the disparities are just so stark. We really do assume that, first of all, from the jump, everybody knows what their dream job is. And I think that that's a really big myth that it would be to our benefit to dispel. I think a lot of the time people discover things they're good at or they're passionate about or they really have a knack for as they age. And I think that this idea that everything that's meaningful to you, whether it's work-related or otherwise, needs to happen when you're 22 or it's not going to happen at all is an incredibly toxic way of thinking, not just about work, but also just about our lives. <laughs> so Rainsford, one of the things that I encounter a lot in coaching work and in systems transformation work is people not being very clear on the difference between their enjoyment of the content of their work and the trappings that they believe they are supposed to be chasing. Mm. And those things get very blurry in people's minds where when you say like, well, what do you, you know, what are you looking for in your next role? They're like, 
VP. And I'm like, right. But what do you like to do? And they're like, be a VP. And I'm like, no, 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 that's not a job. That's not a job. Like that's a title. That's not work. So I'm just curious, you know, when you think about these, these passion questions and these dream job questions, how does like the more egoic, more trapping oriented side of that coin come into play? Oh, I think this is such an interesting distinction, the distinction between title and then the actual substance of the work. I think that from such an early age in America, people are taught to chase titles. They are taught to chase accolades that go along with those titles. And it's framed not just as a good student doing a good project or a worker doing a good job at their job. It kind of gets assigned this moral value You're a good person Mm. who's doing good things and has good things figured out. And of course, that leaves the rest of us who maybe don't know, and we're still negotiating what we want out of a role or what we want out of a community or what we want out of school. It assigns a value judgment to that too. Mm -hmm. And so I think that this gets into even beyond work, honestly, our ideas of worthiness and this idea. Yeah. And this idea that everything that's worthy needs to come with some sort of externally fueled esteem. And I think that when I talk to young people in what they're looking for out of careers, out of communities, out of relationships with other human beings, they're looking for where they can make a contribution and feel supported in making that contribution, which to me speaks a lot more to the fact that they are looking for meaning in work, but not necessarily meaning in the titles that come along with the work. And I think that that distinction is probably going to get even starker as this generation moves through their 20s and into their 30s and onward. I mean, I hope so. Because in in our estimation and in work that I've been doing for 10 years, I have been trying to get people to anchor to value and worth as it relates to contribution to the collective instead of literally anything else. So I'm glad to, <laughs> I'm glad to hear that that's what you're seeing in the world. Well, and I hope so too, because I think it's just such a healthier approach to everything. I think it's why when someone loses a job, there's panic, not just over, of course, loss of income, maybe loss of colleagues, maybe it was work you really enjoyed, but also this kind of loss of identity that I think a lot of the time really is inherently wrapped up in the idea of the title and the idea of who we think we are in that certain role. So- We're talking about people doing work that's meaningful for them. A a phrase we throw around a lot at the ready is just doing your best work or doing the best work of your life, something that you would personally evaluate as being meaningful and and feeling feeling good, feeling fruitful. But what are the hurdles that block people from from doing their best work? Or more specifically, what are the workplace-related bear traps that younger workers are trying to navigate without getting stuck? Okay, so this is kind of a thinky answer, but it's the one that has felt truest as I've talked to different people, young people in particular. In my point of view, the biggest hurdle that prevents people from doing their best work is actually the assumption that all we are is work, all we have to do is work, and the only worthwhile thing is work. And I think that that's probably a little bit bigger than an institution size hurdle. I think it's actually more of a cultural mentality 
born of the fact that you all know this, that for so many of us, work is connected to things like healthcare and housing and security and resources. So it's connected to our identities in ways that you can't entirely flip off or disconnect from at the end of the day. And I think that what will actually allow people to do their best work and be supported in whatever that looks like for them is the acknowledgement from workplaces and from employers that we should be more than our work and that that's Mm -hmm. healthy and important for everybody. Yeah. This reminds me of a conversation I was having earlier today was so interesting. (laughs) This is a little bit of a tangent, but one of our colleagues just returned from parental leave and she and I were having a conversation just about her re-entry into the workplace. And we were talking about how the period of time that so many parents get in the U.S. that is paid for leave is so short that they're really sort of forced back into the workplace when their child is um, not ready for them to go and they are not ready to go and developmentally, they're still sort of in the thick of newbornness and et cetera, et cetera. Uh And Sharon and I were talking about just the, if you take a complexity conscious view, what is the cost in terms of parents exiting the workforce overall that could be hedged by a reasonably long parental leave mm. so that right. they felt like they had done the thing they wanted to do as a new parent and then could really return to work. And Ransford, your comment about all of our identity be, being sort of wrapped up in that, it it really does become this governing thing that tells us mm. how long we have to have a child and bond with it or how long we have to, you know, bury a parent or how long we have to do these things is, is in large organizations usually dictated to us by someone in a way that is not always very humane. Well, and that doesn't even connect to the broader societal cost. I mean, I think when you when you look at some of the policies in in the Nordic countries, they do seem to be dialed into the fact that like, what is the cost to the company? Well, there's a number you can put on that. But what is the cost to society of families and individuals having like the psychic trauma of being yanked in and out of these major life moments yeah. in order to get back to the to the Burger King. I think that that's so important. And I was thinking about a piece that I had reported on uh, paid leave and this idea of sick leave, leave for grief, basically all of the areas in which leave is fundamentally lacking. And someone pointed out, you know, they had buried a family member, their boss was texting them at the funeral, asking them to come in or get online to do emails. They were back to work the very next day. And you have to wonder at some point what the cost of humanity is when we're making these exchanges about what labor is worth and how it should be prioritized in the context of everything else that we know people have going on. And I can't fathom thinking that sad, stressed out, unhealthy, unsupported individual is going to do anything even closely (laughs) resembling their best work or living a life that even feels good. And, And so it really feels to me like a quality of life question. Absolutely. Absolutely. And like not to mention the ways in which just working in systems that treat us that way just it causes more. It causes more mm-hmm. of the same. You know, I I was I was just joking about this with a friend that I worked for many years for an investment bank. And there was probably two years before I left that I was like pretty deeply unhappy. And 
truly like clockwork, I got sick once every five weeks. Mm-hmm. And I would be sick for about 48 hours and properly sick. It was not, it was like, it was a real thing. But I, I think it was just my body processing like the toxicity of my environment and figuring out what to do with that. And it's like, we become unhealthy mentally and physically and emotionally in these systems. And then we bring that lack of health into these systems. And it just, it becomes this very self-fulfilling cycle. It leaks out everywhere. I've had a very similar experience when I was in a a pretty toxic job that I didn't even notice that it was having really significant ramifications on my physical health until I was out of the job. Yeah. I'm chronically ill. We know that things like ableism and ageism and racism are baked into our workplaces and our ideas of who is seen as valuable and deserving in terms of what they produce. And Mm -hmm. I think that this ties right back into that conversation of what happens at work does not stay at work. And what happens at home and in our lives, we bring that to work too. And I think the sooner we can start dismantling systems that encourage people to make their lives all about work, the happier and healthier we'll be. And the work will probably get better as well, I would assume. So I want to connect what we're talking about back to an ideology that's pervasive in traditional systems, which is the pay your dues philosophy. The idea that, you know, the boss (laughs) had to put up with bullshit abuse and finally succeeded. And so now the newer folks need to be hazed accordingly. Um, and, And somehow that'll be worth it in the end. What are some of the more ubiquitous and status quo y workplace conditions and assumptions that keep feeding that beast? Oh, wow. You know, I think that you've said the one that is kind of tethering everything. It's this idea that, well, my generation had to do it, so young people should quit complaining. And I think what that- Right. It's quid pro quo. It is. And I think that what that's missing is that the point is that no one should have had to do it. It's a mentality that's about work and not even limited to certain kinds of work. I think Mm -hmm. everyone is supposed to be paying their dues at something, never mind the fact that dues are- the work for which someone is doing and and should be fairly compensated and supported. And I kind of think about this in two ways. I think there are two versions of paying your dues that get conflated a lot. There's one version where I think people mean or are trying to articulate doing the work that nobody really wants to do, but it's Mm -hmm. work that has to be done. And a lot of that means learning the ins and outs of a job. I think we have to be explicit about the fact that workers doing that work still, just like everybody, deserve sustainable living wages, health care, a healthy work environment, paid time off, everything that should come with work or exist outside it. But I think that as work dominates more of people's waking lives and some workplaces feel like they can get away with demanding a lot more and giving less, paying your dues has kind of expanded in definition to mean enduring abuse And that suffering is the price of entry into the workforce. I think there's really interesting research on this where it's something like 74% of respondents reported experiencing abusive behavior or harassing behavior in their first job. So I think that the thing that kind of tethers all these different versions of paying your dues together is the assumption that we should all expect to endure a toxic job at some point. And I think that that speaks to speaks to the level of toxicity, honestly, because if it's baked into work culture as an assumption, as like a rite of passage, we're going to be less likely to fight back because we're not going to think we have the option to. 
It's funny you say that. I saw a shared text message thread between a manager and an employee the other day, and these are flowing around on Twitter more and more, I'm finding, where the manager was hearing from the employee, I didn't receive my paycheck, you know, in a timely fashion. And if you can't pay me on time, I'm not going to be able to work here because I live paycheck to paycheck. And the the manager basically was writing back, you know, it's you're disrespectful for saying that. Like you need to know your place in the organization. And the fact that you didn't get paid on time is not a reasonable thing to complain about. <laughs> and I was like, wow, we are way far uh, over the rainbow here. I, I do I do think there's a form of pay your dues that is that has been lost in the shuffle that actually is important. And I'd be eager to get your thoughts on it, which is there's there's a form of just being willing to learn and be immersed and build mastery in something. And I think when you hang out with like musicians or actors or writers, you'll hear a little bit of this drumbeat, which is just like, you got to build the craft. Mm -hmm. Like you can't just come right out of school and be like, I would like to be a Pulitzer Prize winning author, please. You have to kind of put in the time and, and there's a healthiness to that. But I also see a little bit of maybe backlash from the, from the older generations sort of pointing to millennials and now Gen Z and beyond and being like, you just want everything. You want a promotion every day. You want everything handed to you. You're not willing to, you know, put in the work. So Mm -hmm. is there a collision happening between all those different phenomena? I think what's getting lost in that conversation is that I think very few young people, millennials, Gen Z, whatever generational categorization we want to use, I think very few of them are saying hey, I want a promotion and I want a gold star and I want all of these accolades every single day or else this isn't worth it to me. I'm sure that someone somewhere is, but what (laughs) I have seen more is, hey, I do expect to be ethically compensated for my labor. I do expect to be treated well at work the way we should all be treated well, regardless of age. I think it's- Okay, fancy pants. (laughs) I think it's so- (laughs) funny that that gets spun as like a generational thing when it's like, no, this is just kind of how it ought to be all along. And I certainly think that there is an element of kind of having to do what, in my mind, I call the grunt work. For Mm -hmm. me, that's what it is, where it's sort of the behind the scenes stuff that would I necessarily pick to do it with my time? No. Did it help me grow as a writer or as a worker or in whatever role I hold? Yes, it absolutely did. And it is necessary to the process of learning. I think what we kind of need to clear the cobwebs off of is this idea that just because you're in that grunt work or learning phase of your career, of your life, that that means you don't deserve a basic standard of living and fulfilling and safety as you make your way through your life. I'd be so interested to hear how this conversation kind of pivoted if everybody had equitable wages and healthcare, because Mm -hmm. I'm not sure there would be this pitting against each other of, well, I had to do hard work and it was terrible. And well, I had to do hard work and the work was hard, but the conditions were okay. And that made it manageable. Yeah, absolutely. It's a it's a really it's a very interesting conversation and it reminds me that in our own journey at the ready around doing Jedi work, one of the things that I have learned in the last 2 years that I did not know before or didn't pay attention to very closely was about how things like 
unpaid internships mm-hmm. or underpaid entry-level positions, et cetera, et cetera, really do favor people who come from privilege or have other sources of support or income, et cetera. So it's like mm-hmm. the the point that you're making, Rainsford, is like everyone should be treated this way because it is only fair to compensate people for the contribution that they're making. And also there's the the addition of if we're not doing that, we are also um, preventing a lot of people from accessing opportunities that could put them on a rung of the ladder. Now, there's another conversation about where that ladder is headed, but <laughs> the access to the ladder can certainly be blocked because people have to support themselves. Oh my gosh, absolutely. You know, I was thinking that it go. I feel like a version of it goes viral on Instagram and Twitter at least once a month. The thing where it's like, five years of experience and a master's degree for an entry-level job, (laughs) which basically makes the assumption that someone is starting their career with half a decade of experience already. And I think the assumption that everybody is getting that experience on the same timeline in the same way really reinforces structural inequities embedded in who gets to do what kind of work. And I think that your point is is exactly right. When we make the assumption that people can work for low wages or no money or have no health insurance, that really does impact who gets to be in certain rooms and who gets to do certain kinds of work. Because the reality is not everyone can work for free in order to gain experience on the job. They have bills to pay and they have to feed themselves. And all of those quality of life issues impact the quality of the work that someone decides to do. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. Hey, if you like what you're hearing, a review would mean a lot to us. And here's why. All the algorithms that run our lives decide who gets to hear what based on who has the stars and who has the reviews. It's not fair. I don't love it, but it's how the world works. And so if you'd like the world to work differently, go ahead and share the show with a friend, drop a review and let us know how you're feeling about it. The first chapter of your book is called, quote, for the experience, unquote. And in it, you write, working for the experience will hardly pay your rent or allow you to get groceries, but those extraordinary experiences are supposed to be a different form of currency that we're on a track toward proving ourselves. You're talking about internships, which we just were talking about, which are sometimes paid, but usually aren't. Who are internships actually designed to be helping? And like, now that we've started to uncover this a little bit, should we just burn that whole system down? Or is there a better way that we could be thinking about it? You know, I think that there's all kinds of better ways to be thinking about it. I think whether really the colleges that so much that are entangled in so much of this are willing to rethink it is a different question because I think mm-hmm. an important point in the kind of sitting at the center of all of this is that not only are some of these internships unpaid, but in a lot of cases people are expected to pay a university a tuition fee for the privilege of working for someone else for absolutely nothing. And I don't think it's hard to riddle out how that impacts who gets to do what, because Mm -hmm. if if you can't afford to work for free and you're making the tuition payment or rolling it into a loan, that puts you in a very different position than someone whose parents are supporting them through school as they have that experience. In the book, I quote research by Dr. Carrie Elshandra, who does really amazing work on this. And what that shared is that according to a college exit survey by UCLA, 
Only 29% of college seniors reported doing an internship in 1994. Mm. Well, by 2017, that number was 65%. (laughs) So in a lot of cases, this is no longer seen as like a bonus, nice to have, kind of cool experience if you can get it. I think it is seen for a lot of roles as a prerequisite. Mm -hmm. And I think that it really does from from a very early stage of people's careers kind of define the track they're on. Because, you know, for example, why is the young person who worked for years at a grocery store not seen as having valuable work experience, but the student who worked a part-time unpaid internship facilitated through their university is seen that Mm -hmm. way? And I think that those are the questions that we really have to kind of grapple with because I think a paid internship is an entirely different equation. And in that instance, it might be an opportunity for someone to make really valuable connections or understand better the kind of work they might like to do. But I think the problem is applying it kind of as a one size fits all prerequisite and not setting everyone up to have that prerequisite. It's funny because if you look at the the numbers that you just threw out, this racket affects way more people than than you would normally consider. And the number of people who are going through school mm-hmm. debt-free and then taking an internship and, and managing their living expenses and coming out with a blank zero-sum outcome is, I think it's so vanishingly small now. Like this is really a 1%, one-tenth of 1% phenomenon, while the other 64% of people that took that internship are carrying that cost and they're carrying that debt. So I'm I'm assuming, and I'm, I'm sure when you interviewed folks for the book, you heard a lot of anger, confusion, dismay, panic about people's work-life situations. Like the emotions have to be running hot. So why is it that work crises have now become similar emotionally to a full-blown identity crisis? Are they one and the same? Oh, I think that's a great question. And I think on the internship thing, one thing that struck me as so interesting is that even the transition just within a decade is astounding. For example, Mm -hmm. I'm 28. When I was in college, which was its own convoluted process, but when (laughs) I was in college, internships were seen as a thing that you really needed to figure out how to do, even if it was impossible. And now when I talk to young people, there was more of an inherent skepticism in the fact that this was going to pay off later. And I don't have data to back this up, but I think people I spoke to later in their 20s were kind of raised in the idea that you do all of this work for free and maybe it's going to get you a job when you graduate college and thus be quote unquote worth it. And I think most early 20-somethings now are under no such illusions. I think that they have seen Mm -hmm. people graduate with the debt of the degree, with the debt of the internship, or with an internship that pays such low wages that it doesn't really set them up to do anything. And they've spent all these this time making these connections and gaining these experiences and still have no job at the end. Mm-hmm. And I think it becomes obvious then how much of an identity crisis this turns into because it gets internalized as this is the way the system is supposed to work. And you, you alone, You're the what's individual, wrong. Yeah, yeah, you've done something wrong. And of course, you look around and it seems like everyone is working harder or doing more. And so you've got the comparison factor in there. But mostly when you think about it, if we dial it way back, even before college, so much of young adulthood for so many people is 
pressure to figure out very early in life what they are good at, what access they have to those things, how they're going to monetize it. And so when you graduate, if you graduate, all of that adds up to feeling like a crushing sense of failure if you haven't answered that inherent question of who am I? And increasingly (laughs) that who am I question reads like, what do I do? Yeah. Ugh, makes me so mad. I want to flip the table over. It's just <laughs> such a bummer. This is also making me, it's reminding me of my first job out of school and mm-hmm. how, just how different of a person I was also, because that was in 2000. <laughs> and I just did not give a shit about work at all. Like I was so, I just like, you know, charmed my way into a job that a lot of other people wanted. And I remember it was so, it was 2000. I worked for a big consulting company and, you know, the, the, the first, of the internet bubbles burst very badly. And it was very clear that my department was going to be like significantly Axed. impacted. And I heard through the grapevine, cause I was friends with everyone that they were going to, out of 90 of us, they were, they were going to keep 10. Oof. And I, truly my only thought was like, fuck, am I going to have to move back to my mom's house? Like there was no part of it that was like embarrassing or I'm worried or what if I'm not like kept in the tent or like, what does this mean about me? I was just like, fuck dude, I do not want to move back to Connecticut. (laughs) And now I just feel like now that I've been on the other side of that equation, there is so much more people, young people's identities are so much more connected and enmeshed in the role that they have. And it's like, it's very interesting to me what 20 years can do. Cause like, you know, when I was that age, I was like coming and hung over and sleeping under my desk and just hoping to God that I wasn't one of those 80 people. Cause I didn't want to go home. You know, it's wild. It's wild how times have changed. It, it does feel like there's a polarity here where we're talking to people about the story of, of youth and, and early career as the time to experiment and chase your dreams and prove yourself and travel internationally and do all this stuff before you have, you know, you're saddled with responsibility. But on the other hand, you have to be practical and prepared to do anything and 80 hour work weeks. And you have to make sure that you achieve and unlock like a young Kardashian. And so it feels completely paradoxical and completely frustrating. Is there a third story that we should be telling instead about that period of life? There is a third story. And the third story, if I could sum it up in one word, is nuance. Because we, <laughs> we do this thing and we do it with people in general, but it really manifests in young adulthood. I think when so many things about your life and who you are are kind of starting to come to some sort of head, we assume that all young adults are upper middle class, white, know exactly what they're going to do, have the privilege to do it. We hold no space for the fact that there are young people who have been taking on young adult roles way earlier in their lives. We Mm -hmm. hold no space for the fact that there are a lot of people that hit their mid-20s and rethink everything or have the bottom fall out because of grief, because of illness, because of circumstance, because of a dozen different things. We never hold space or give resources to the idea that as human beings, we spend a lot of time rewriting and revising the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the story that we need to start telling about this time of life, because you're exactly right. These myths of extreme adventure and exploration or extreme practicality and extreme reason 
they're competing. They don't fit together. And somehow we still expect everybody to pull them off on the same timeline and in the same way. And I think what would go a long way here is making sure that everybody has the resources to live their version of a safe and fulfilled life and take their time. You know, you can't experiment if you have no resources to experiment with. I'll never mm-hmm. forget, you know, one one student that I interviewed actually about college who was also working uh, in the book talked about very well-intentioned professors and mentors saying over and over, it's okay to fail. It's okay to fail. It's good for you. And she told me very bluntly, I can't afford to fail because I can't afford to retake this class. Right. I can't afford to experiment with an internship in an area that I don't know that I'm any good at or interested in, because if it backfires, I can't afford to pay for another internship credit. There's no margin. Right. There's no margin for error. It's so much slimmer. And so I think that if we're going to encourage people to experiment, which I personally think is really important, both personally, developmentally, emotionally, all these things, we've got to get the story to the point where we're also talking about what experimentation takes and who that lack of resources is leaving out. I can't end an episode in in November of 2021 <laughs> when we're talking about this without mentioning that I am seeing signs of hope in some of the emerging Web3 spaces where people are joining decentralized autonomous organizations where they have a stake and just participating as community members without some of the traditional trappings of expectations and onboarding and bosses and management and all that. Unfortunately, it's it, that's limited to a very narrow subset of people who have the privilege to think about and access that right now. But it does give me hope. I'm curious for you, is there are there other signs of hope in in younger workers, in other forms of organizing, better ways of working? What you know, where what gets you out of bed in the morning as you look at this topic? I think the fact that there are people both a lot younger and a lot older than me who are willing to have the hard conversations and do the hard work to make work itself better and more equitable for all of us. Every time I talk to a young person who's trying to unionize their workplace or is reconfiguring work-life balance in their own life where they can and really trying to set boundaries. Every time I hear about someone quitting something, if they can, that's really harmful to their physical <laughs> and it. mental health. I feel I feel hope because you know, I could not wrap my head around leaving even a really toxic job at 22. And when I talk to 22-year-olds who are trying to do that if they can, I think, wow we're getting a much more explicit definition of what boundaries are and the fact that people are really willing to set them now. I hope that, you know, considerations of accessibility and what works best for disabled and chronically ill workers moving forward out of the pandemic, if we ever get out of the pandemic, I hope (laughs) that gets equal consideration because I know that that's been a really significant part of conversations I've gotten to hear about this sort of return to the office. And a lot of people, if they got to work from home, are asking, but why would I ever commute again and return to the office? I hope that we end up, what gives me hope is the idea that there is a more inclusive, expansive definition of what a healthy work environment is out there. And there are people that are doing the work of creating that. 
YOLO is real. (laughs) Well, creating a more hopeful future seems like a pretty great place to draw things to a close. Rainsford, where can our listeners find out more about you and your work? You can find me on Twitter, which is literally just my first name, and I tweet way too much for my own good. Rainsford, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you all so much for having me. And a quick tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin for making us all sound good. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work. Get in touch with us by emailing podcast at The Ready. And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something.